0: First off, uh, Tara Lee got through surgery, (laughs) and uh, as I was talking with her last night, I said, I'm so glad they found out what was wrong with you, because Tara Lee's had a diet problem for ever since I've known her, really. And so they operated on her, and uh, she's doing good. But keep her in your prayers. Uh, I'm sure she would appreciate that. Uh, On our way in this morning, Lori and I saw a a rafter of turkeys. (laughs) You ready for that? That means a bunch of turkeys, all right? 11 wild turkeys on the roadside. Now, if that don't bring out... The desire to grab your shotgun and go crazy, nothing will. But uh, reminded me, it is Thanksgiving time. reminds me that we're having our potluck this morning. We had one of their cousins in the back of the car. We're bringing, to, we're bringing down here, and we will eat that cousin. So, continuing through Genesis, let's look at chapter 11, verse 27, and we'll go through chapter 12, verse 3. So I'll give you a moment to turn there, Genesis chapter eleven, easy to find. So I'm not going to give you a lot of time. So Genesis eleven, verse twenty-seven. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah, in his native land. In Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughters of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarah was barren, she had no child. And Terah took his son Abram, and his grandson Lot, and the son of Haran, and his daughter in law Sarah, his son's Abram wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran, chapter 12. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from all your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in your family, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We come to Abraham or Abram. Abram will later have a name changed to be called Abraham. And the book of Genesis covers about 2,000 years. That's more than 20 generations. And of the 2,000 years, we center in on a man called Abraham. And about one-third of the text of Genesis concentrates on Abraham. Abram means father. Sarai, his wife, means contentions. There you go. However, Sarai and Abram, they're barren. They have no children, and God will use that barrenness of Sarai to mold and shape their lives. It's a hardship for them up front, but God will use that hardship to get what he wants out of their life. And the story, the saga of Abraham begins in Ur of the Chaldeans, or as we looked at last week, Nimrod's Babylon area. In Joshua chapter 24, uh, there's a description of Abram there before God called him out of Ur, and it says, Abram was an idol worshiper. And he's from a family of idol worshipers. When Jacob, Abraham's grandson, when Jacob goes back to his father's, grandfather's people, to his relatives, he goes back to get a wife, and they're all involved in idol worship. God has called Abram to himself while he lives in a land of of idol worshipers. Does that sound familiar? God has called you and I out of a life of sin or out of idol worship to himself. Thank you, Lord. However, Abram, he is only partially obedient to God when he's called out of the land of Ur. Later, Abraham will become that shining example of faith. But early in Abram's life, faith is the area where he fails miserably. Many times, Abram will fail in what is his strength, faith. And some make excuses for Abram because they say, well, uh, He didn't know God up close and personal, and they make excuses for his partial obedience. Uh, But Abram heard God well enough to leave the land of Ur, to get up, pull up stakes, and move. He heard God well enough to move, but he didn't seem to hear God well enough to be obedient. He's obedient, but he's only partially obedient obedient. Many times in our thinking, in our relationship with God, we think partial obedience is good enough. After all, I tried. You know, I give it my best shot, which is not necessarily true, but however, in truth, partial obedience is nothing more than disobedience. Partial obedience declares, I will obey God if I consider his commands plausible. I will obey God as long as it fits my thinking or is convenient. Many times, what we consider reasonable is an offense to God. Let me repeat that. Many times what we consider reasonable offends God. You take a small child. You give them a choice as to what they want to have for dinner. Would you like dessert? Or would you like whatever else? What are they choosing? Dessert. Almost every time a child will choose dessert. But severe health issues will arise very quickly in that child that only eats sweets. I mean, that's basic, right? And sometimes we only want to eat the sweets. We only want to go with God on the good things. But God knows our beginning from our past. He knows our future, which we do not know. And if God knows what is best for us, why is it difficult to trust him and obey him? That is only prudent. It is only wise. Hopefully, as believers, we are in that process of learning that God's ways are best for us. Chapter 12, in verse 1. Abram is commanded to get out of your country away from your kindred, away from your family. Now, that's a simple, straightforward command by God. But when you drop down to verse 4, which we'll look at next week, we read, Lot, Abraham's nephew, goes with him out of the land of Ur. Leaving Ur has become a family affair. It is partial obedience because Abram has been told, leave Ur by himself, and he takes his whole family. And we begin to see the problems that come into Abram's life because he takes his whole family. God is prospering Abram, and we see Lot, his nephew, benefiting from God's blessings upon Abram. But that goes for a while, and then we see strife come up between Abram and Lot in their herdsmen, their sheep, their shepherds, and those that keep the flocks. They're beginning to battle over the the well-watered plains and this kind of thing. And Abraham now has to deal with strife in his very own family and that's always unpleasant when you have to deal with strife, and Abram is a family leader, and he's having to deal with this strife issue. Eventually, Abram goes to Lot and says, "Hey, we got to divide. We got to separate." And Lot chooses the well-watered plains, the best pasture land for himself, and that's kind of where. We see that subject in. But scripture, it doesn't record Abraham complaining whatsoever about Lot choosing the better. But don't think for a moment that Abraham doesn't notice this. He's not naive that uh, Lot chose the best pasture land for himself. He's a herdsman himself. He knows what Lot has chosen The younger, having chosen the better pasture land, the better half, goes against all the culture mores of that day. You just didn't do that being the younger. You didn't choose the better over the patriarch of the family. And I guarantee you that it grieved Abram to see his nephew choosing selfishly. Abram knew that God would take care of him, but he also sees his own nephew choosing selfishly. Doesn't it grieve any parent, any grandparent for that matter, when selfishness is displayed in your children? It does. Lori and I, we have seven grandchildren. And when they're your grandchildren, you can't help but love them. (laughs) But two of the seven, and I'm I'm not going to get into naming who's who here. Two of the seven are what we would call unselfish. They're willing to share with their toys, willing to share with their food, anything they have, they're willing to share with it. But the selfishness issue is not there in two out of the seven. And you notice those kind of things. Abram noticed. He knew that Lot has chose the best for himself. And it had to grieve him. It had to hurt his feelings, to say the least. Later on, Lot will be captured by several kings in a battle Uh, that comes to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Sodom happens to be where Lot now finds himself living. Lot is living there in Sodom because Abram has brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And now Abram finds that he must go to war to rescue his nephew. He has to go and set free Lot from uh, chedul and the other kings that have captured him and taken him prisoner. Strife and war are now in Abram's life that could have been avoided if he would have separated and if he'd have been obedient to God's command. How often do you and I suffer strife and conflict because of partial obedience. I would venture to say a lot more than we would consider. But Abram, he's not all bad, he's a man of faith, but he's also a man that is told that he is a friend of God. Scripture speaks of Abram being a friend of God, and this is done several times in Scripture. James 2.23, it says, Abram, a friend of God forever. <laughs> That's a great thing to have written about you. Second Chronicles 27, Abraham, my friend. And the same in Isaiah one eight Abraham, my friend. A friend, a close friend, is a, a precious commodity. You know, you can go through life with just a handful of what we call close friends. But we are to be friendly, aren't we? I know Chuck Smith. Yeah, I do. (laughs) I could call him my friend. But the real question remains, does Chuck Smith call me his friend? You know, God has said of Abram, he is my friend. Jesus deals with this issue in in John chapter fifteen. You may want to turn there. John fifteen, and Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And it, it's good for us to look at what he has to say to them. Any time Jesus sat his disciples down and talked to them. You know, you want to you listen up. What does Jesus have to say here? So John chapter 15, we'll look at verses 12 through 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for servants do not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. For whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another." Verse 12 there, Jesus declares, love one another. Now, we've all heard that. But then Jesus says, in the same manner, in the same way that I have loved you, love one another. It's not an option. We do not have the privilege of loving one another as we think might be best. No, no. Jesus says, you love as I have loved you. There's the standard. It's not a man's standard. We are to demonstrate agape, God-like love towards one another. And the standard of loving is a two-fold standard there when we look at it. Love is Jesus' love when we lay down our life. And the second is we must take one another on as friends. Uh-oh, another qualification in loving. <laughs> Friendship is part of loving. Loving a friend is not only a sacrificial type love, but it's that desire to be around, to hang out with one another. Now, many Christians will be quick to say, I love him because he's a fellow believer. Because we know love is required. You know, we learned that way, way back as little kids, that we're to love one another. But many Christians also avoid being around or with other Christians that they don't necessarily want to be around, thus, they are not loving them. You want to be around those you love. You can speak of loving, but. If the truth is you have no desire to be with or around that person, you are not loving them. Now, you can tap dance around that all day long. (laughs) But that's the truth. If you love someone, you want to be around them. Verse 13, Jesus tells us the greatest love, the greatest measure of love is to lay down your life for a friend. How can you obey that commandment to love and lay down your life for a friend if you have no friends? They're tied together. Nobody lays down their life for strangers. And I'm speaking in human terms. Our Lord did. But in human terms, you do not lay down your life for someone you do not know. So what do we do? To avoid this command, many Christians avoid friendships. They have arm-length relationships. We keep our safe distance. And we do so many times because we've had bad experiences. We've been burned, we've been hurt, we've been whatever. And for that person, I say, you gotta be like your Lord. You gotta be like the Good Samaritan. Study the Good Samaritan. What a beautiful study that is. A few years back, we had a very needy lady Began to attend here. First thing you notice, she hung out over in the bookstore area. And she would say things like, oh, what a beautiful Bible. And then she would say, I need a Bible. One of our ladies bought her a Bible. I thought, well, that's good, <laughs> you know. Next thing, next week, she needed help with her utilities. Utilities. Her husband happened to be in the hospital, and he was in the hospital from injuries he had suffered from a strong-arm robbery, like from a person they had befriended and brought into their home. So, hey, we helped the lady with her utilities. Then the next week, it was something else. Now, I'm not real sharp, but I'm starting to see a pattern here in this lady's life so I sat her down in my office and we had a heart-to-heart talk. Come to find out after talking with her there were a lot of holes in her story. (laughs) She had not been completely honest with me and with us as a fellowship. And it was my obligation to tell her she was being deceitful to receive money and things. She was offended that I would say that to her. She became indignant. How could I say this? Blah, blah, blah. On she went. So I had to make myself more clear to her. I had to tell her she was lying to receive help. That didn't go over real big either. (laughs) She left in a huff. So we do see these times when we t- are taken advantage of as Christian. So when people approach a church or for assistance or for help, we have a responsibility to gather facts or see the truth of the matter. We do want to help people. But if I do not know you, I want to get to know you. And if you do not attend here, I want to know why are you coming here asking for help if you don't have anything to do with us? Why are you asking us for help and we do not know you? There's no friendship there, there's no fellowship there. So if you're not working or willing to work to help yourself, why Are you asking the church to help you? Why are you asking people who do work for assistance if you're not willing to work? And many people just like this lady, they're quick to ask for help. They're quick to ask for help. And as a body of believers, we have a responsibility to know why do you need help. That's not a bad question, by the way. So if we find ourselves asking questions, questions that a friend would know the answer to, that's part of being the friend to love one another. Like, what are your spending habits? Why are you always broke? Are you working? Are you looking for work? Who else have you asked for assistance? Do you have a pattern of asking for help? And these are the kind of questions that are answered if there is a friendship level going on there. Now, many of you have helped one another, and may the Lord bless you for it. Seriously, I, I think we're a very giving con- congregation. But every now and then, I have to caution some of you be careful of who you are giving to and why you are giving. Being a friend answers many of those questions that are not always pleasant to hear. Jesus, in verse 14, he says it best. You are my friend if you do whatever I command you. See, Jesus put a limitation on it right now. You're my friend if you do what I command you. Jesus has one great requirement to be his friend. Obey his word. There it is. You obey my word. You're my friend. There are requirements upon it. Let me paraphrase verse 15 there. Jesus is talking to the disciples. He says, you, you're no longer my servants. You're my friends. And as friends, I want to give you my Father's words. Words of life. Words to live by. And then we have Jesus closing in verse 17, the same way he opened this passage with the command to love One another. But the in between command of loving one another, Jesus says, be friends with one another, and you are my friends. So we have this friendship issue that's sandwiched between loving one another. You cannot love one another without befriending one another. And too many times, I think we try. To separate the two. Abraham Lincoln, when he was president, he received a request uh, to pardon a soldier who had deserted the army. Part Part of this man's plea was that he wanted President Lincoln to befriend him because he had no friends. And it worked. President Lincoln pardoned him and said, I will be your friend. And he gave the guy a pardon. God said of Abraham, Father Abraham, not Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> "I am his friend, and he is my friend." What a great thing to have said about yourself. Jesus said to his disciples, "No longer are you servants, but you are my friends." Jesus says to you and I, if you obey my commands, we are friends. So I say to you this morning, by the authority of God's word, as a friend of God, love one another and befriend one another. Amen. Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. So we're having a potluck. And you get a chance to befriend one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you first off that you're willing to be our friend. On any circumstance, Lord, you're willing to be our friend. And then you say, just just obey me. And that's not a grievous command. That is a command that benefits us to obey you, our Lord and our God. So we want to live according to your word. We want to obey your commands. We don't want to look upon your commands as being restrictive or harsh. We want to see them as being beneficial to us, which they are, Lord. So we thank you. Forgiven us the words of your Father, Jesus. You give us truth in your word. Let us embrace that truth. Let us hold it dear to us. Let it be a pattern in our life that your word is truth. Go before us, Lord, in this Thanksgiving season, in this holiday season. Give us hearts that are grateful and thankful. And Lord, we would pray that we would befriend one another. And if we befriend one another, allow us to love one another. Thank you for your commands, Lord. They are not grievous. They are good. Be with us by your spirit. Help us to be like Jesus. And we pray and ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.